There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg and Colin. And Greg, this is our 40th episode. Oh man, that's hard to believe. But yeah, it's been fun so far. Yeah, if it was a birthday, we'd be having a party. But instead, we're quarantined and doing podcasts remotely. Exactly. Although this one, we're live and in person, which is kind of nice to do. Yeah, broadcasting from the 28th floor of the Bow Building in beautiful downtown Calgary. Exactly. So last week we talked about cautionary tales and how financial engineering led to the collapse of some big companies historically. And today we're going to talk about index investing. And we've talked about it in previous episodes, but just a refresher on what is an index, how it works, what are the major indices in Canada, the US and international and emerging markets. So Greg, I think it's important for us to start off with what is an index. Yeah, it makes sense. Although It's indices, is it? I would have thought indexes, but I think indices make sense too. I think it's indices. All right. Okay, we'll go with it. We're indecisive on index versus indices, but I believe it's indices. So so an index. An index is basically just a method to track the performance of a group of assets in a standardized way. So it's just a basket of securities intended to replicate a certain area of a market. And where you see these are... There could be broad-based indexes or broad-based indices that capture the entire market. A good example of that, I guess, would be the S&P 500 index. Right on. Or there could be more specialized sub-indices that track a particular industry or segment. So you quite often hear about those like, I don't know, in Calgary, you talk about the energy market or the energy index. So the key takeaways of what index investing is, again, it's a measure of price performance of a basket of securities using a standardized metric and methodology. And indexes in financial markets are often used as benchmarks. And that's an important one, Greg, because whenever anybody's talking about performance, they always talk about how it's compared to their benchmark. That's right. You got to have something to compare it to so you know whether you're doing well or not. But quite often, what I see people comparing is the wrong benchmark or using the wrong benchmark. Yeah, exactly. So passive index investing has become a very popular low-cost way of replicating the returns of popular indices such as the S&P 500. And there's also, I guess, an argument of passive versus active, but we're not going to get into that today. We're just talking about how indexes work. So they're created to measure other financial or economic data such as interest rates, inflation, manufacturing output, And again, to serve as benchmarks of performance. So I don't mean to bring that up again, but what I've seen in the past is people will say, my portfolio has underperformed the S&P 500. But that person's portfolio could be, I don't know, 50% invested in bonds, and they're comparing it to a benchmark that's 100% US stocks. Exactly. And I think it comes up sometimes when we talk about an index versus a benchmark, because sometimes the index is the benchmark. And other times, in your example, you need a custom benchmark, which might be a benchmark that consists of 50% of the 
S&P 500 index for stocks and 50% of the U.S. aggregate bond index or the Canadian TMX bond index. So a benchmark can be an index, but it can also be a custom-derived measure that you can see how your portfolio is doing. Exactly. And interestingly, you cannot invest directly in an index. So when people talk about index investing, they're investing in exchange-traded funds or maybe mutual funds that are created to replicate a certain index, whether that be a market index like the S&P 500 or a sub-indices like the energy market or even a bond market index ETF. So when putting together these mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, fund sponsors attempt to create portfolios that are mirroring the components of a certain index. And this is an important point, Greg, because you can't measure yourself against an index unless you own all of the same things that are in the index. So that's something that we want to keep in mind. Let's talk a little bit about Canada. Now, the Canadian indices, the biggest Canadian index, of course, is the S&P TSX Composite Index. This is the one that when you turn on the news at the end of the day, it's reporting a few things. It reports like where the price of oil is, how the Canadian dollar fared, what the TSX did, and what the Dow Jones did. Those are all reported on a daily basis. But the Composite Index isn't actually composed of the whole Toronto Stock Exchange. So the TSX Composite Index is made up of 250 companies, but the Toronto Stock Exchange actually has 1,500 companies that trade on it every day. So I guess, in essence, this would be the largest 250 companies of the 1,500 that trade in the market. And generally, I think those 250 companies, even though they might be only a fifth or a sixth of the total number of companies, they probably represent a very huge percentage of the market cap of the entire stock market. Yeah, like that 1,500th company is adding very little to the overall return. And actually, that became clear during this whole short squeeze. I'm not going to mention the company name anymore, but the short squeeze that occurred in the US in that there were people that said, well, look, people are taking advantage of this price and it's moving the market. We said, it's actually not moving the market. It's too small of a position to move a market. That's right. Let's talk about what the top holdings of the Toronto Stock Exchange Composite Index are. This surprised me, Greg. What do you think? And I know you can read it, so maybe this is a little rhetorical. The largest company by market capitalization in the Toronto Stock Exchange, is it a bank? Is it an energy company? What is it? Well, I know the answer to this, but (laughs) the only thing I'll tell you is it used to be a bank for basically the last 30 years, 40 years, it's been a bank. But now it's Shopify. Unbelievable. I was actually quite surprised to see that. But the top, I'll just read off the top five here by market cap. So just the size of the companies compared to the overall market. Shopify, Royal Bank. Oh, before we get started on this, Greg, we should have a disclaimer here. It says, we are not recommending any of these positions to buy, trade, or hold, or sell, or whatever. Of course not. We're just saying that these are companies that are in the top 10 holdings in the Toronto Stock Exchange. Exactly. Okay, now we got that out of the way. So Shopify, Royal Bank, TD Bank, Canadian National Railway, Enbridge, Bank of Nova Scotia, Brookfield Asset Management, Bank of Montreal, Canadian Pacific Railway, and TransCanada Energy. Oh, sorry. I mean, TC Energy. Interesting list, isn't it? And what's interesting is that when a lot of the stock markets were first formed, and I'll be talking about this in a second when we talk about the U.S. market indexes, but the railways originally were the biggest companies 
in Canada and the U.S. And here we are, CN and, and CP Rail are both still in the top 10. It is remarkable. actually kind of remarkable, yeah. But actually a twist to that is 15 years ago or so, what was the largest company in the Toronto Stock Exchange? I don't know. Yeah, you do. Royal Bank. Nortel. Nortel. Right? Oh, 20 years 20 ago. 20 years ago. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Right. I got my, my <laughs> years wrong, but... That's right. So there's currently no exchange-traded funds that match the whole composite index, but there are ones that replicate that TSX 250. Now, there are, as I mentioned earlier, some sub-indices that are represented in the market. You can buy the energy index. You can buy the financial services index or the technology index or a whole slew of them, the REIT index. But I guess the question is, if you're already buying the whole index do you need to spend any time buying sub-indices within the index? Well, it's interesting because in a way, and we'll talk about this a little bit more because it's more profound even in the U.S., is that basically all those sub-indexes, indices, or indices for that matter, they basically appeal to people's desire to continue to want to pick stocks. And so it's like, I'm going to pick this stock because I like it, but maybe I like the sector, so I'll pick this theme And so rather than buying the market or rather than buying an individual stock in the energy sector, why don't I just buy an ETF that basically is tied to the capped energy index, for example. And so in a way, it's a way for people to sort of express their stock picking desires or to use their predictions to invest in a certain way, which in the end may work out, may not, who knows. But of course, we always, of course, would suggest owning the entire market and making sure you're always in the right place at the right time. One interesting thing about, you mentioned, there's nothing that exactly matches the composite indexes, but of course there are indexes that are, like we have the S&P TSX ETF that tracks, it's a capped composite index, which basically includes all of those stocks, but caps any individual holding at 10%, no more than 10%. Now, why is that? Well, it's because just as you mentioned that company Nortel back in, 2000 or 1999, Nortel itself made up over 20% of the Canadian market. And so I think when they restructured these indexes, they wanted to make sure that no one stock could make up that much of the entire market. So that resulted in a lot of different types of indexes that are capped, that capped anyone holding to no more than 10%. Well, interesting, a few years ago, a guy came in and said, geez, the market's just getting creamed, hey? And I didn't know what he was talking about because the TSX and the S&P and everything was up that day. And I said, well, which market? And he said, well, oil. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that oil was the The, whole market. The market, right on. Okay. (laughs) Well, listen, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the U.S. market indexes or indices. Indices. Now, the U.S. is lousy with indexes. And when I say lousy with indexes, it just means there's a whole lot of them. And according to Bloomberg, and I'm looking for the stats on this, to, I'm looking for the proof on this, but according to Bloomberg, there's something in the order of 5,000 indexes that track various parts of the markets. So there's now, more indexes than stocks. Exactly right. So it just shows you how everybody's looking for a way to slice and dice the market according to different criteria. But let's just focus for the purposes here, mainly on the three most broadly followed indexes in the U.S., and those are the Dow Jones Industrial Average, often called the Dow the S&P 500 index, and the NASDAQ Composite Index. So those are the three biggies. And of those, the oldest one is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was created actually back in 1896 by Charles Dow, who was the founder of Dow Jones & Company. Fun fact, 
This is actually the second oldest index. The first was the Dow Jones Transportation Index, and that was created in 1884 by the same Charles Dow. So the Transportation Index began with 11 companies, of which nine were railroads, to our earlier point. Back in those days, railroads were the largest companies in the U.S., and they made up nine of the 11 stocks of the transportation average. So they created the Dow Jones Industrial Average to reflect kind of a more broad-based representation of the U.S. economy, not so much emphasis on transportation, although the Dow Jones Transportation Index still exists. So the Dow originally consisted of 12 companies, but by 1928, it expanded to 30, and that's where it is today. So the Dow is represented by 30 companies. Is that just because Standard Oil was broken up in around that time frame and it spun off 28 new companies? Well, it could be. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about the Dow is it's what they call a price-weighted index. And what that means is that the stocks with higher share prices have a greater weight in the index. That contrasts with most of the other major indexes that we talk about, which are what we call market cap-weighted. We can dive into that in a bit. Let's go back and go through that again, because I want to make sure we all understand that. Can you Sure. So, that? so price-weighted index means if you have a company whose shares are trading at $100 a share and another company with shares are trading at $50 a share, then the $100 a share company will have a larger representation in the index than the $50 a share company. Even if it has a smaller market capitalization than Correct. the $50 a share company. Correct. That seems crazy. What they have done, though, is like on that basis, you would think, okay, well, for every dollar that a $50 company grows by, that's 2%, that's a bigger impact on the Dow than a dollar growth of the $100 a share company, which would only be a 10% growth. 1%. 1%, sorry. 2% and 1%. But they have created what they call a divisor or just a way of evening that out. And so you don't get an unequal impact from share price growth in one stock over another. So the interesting thing about the Dow is that it's a very stable index in terms of its constituents. So since 1928, there's only been 60 changes to the constituents of the Dow. So something like a change every two years, something like that. But there's been some notable changes. And in the last 25 years that I've been in the business, there's been some biggies. For example, in 1999, Microsoft, Intel, and Home Depot were added to the index. And Microsoft and Intel were the first technology companies ever to be added to the index, I believe. Possibly IBM back in the 70s. But of course, Microsoft and Intel were growing dramatically at that time. And are you recommending Microsoft or Intel to any investors out there? Of course not. Of course not. These are just <laughs> names that happen to be on a list. So Apple was added in 2015. And I didn't realize this, but in 2020, Salesforce was added. And for people who may not be familiar with Salesforce, it's a client relationship management company that is used around the world and another technology name. But it's not just technology companies that are being added. As I mentioned, Home Depot was added in 1999. Visa was added and Walgreens, a big US drugstore chain was added. They've all been added in the last 20 years. So when you talk about the Dow, it's a broadly watched index. And so even though it's relatively concentrated, it is broadly watched and referenced by all of us and people around the world. But it's so concentrated. Like how many stocks trade in the U.S. market every day? Yeah, something like close to 4,000. 4,000. And these are the 30 largest companies? That's right. And so the Dow, I believe, represents about a quarter of the U.S. market capitalization. 
So it is a very concentrated index, but again, it's been around for so long that it is still one of the most closely watched indexes. And when you look at the top 10 companies today, Apple, Microsoft, Visa, JP Morgan Chase, these are the largest of the 30. JP Morgan Chase, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, United Health, Procter & Gamble, Walt Disney, and Home Depot. But getting into something that's a little bit more broad, the S&P 500 index is the other one that's referenced quite a bit. And this represents the largest 500 companies trading in the U.S. Now, it's not only size. There are some other criteria that have to be met for a stock to be included in the S&P 500, but that's generally, this would represent the large cap companies. And again, this comprises about 14% of the total number of companies in the U.S., but about 80% of the market capitalization. So whereby the Dow, we said, represented about 25% of the U.S. market cap, the S&P 500 represents about 80%. That's a pretty important point. I got to go back on the point I made earlier. You said the Dow, the biggest 30 companies, actually make up one quarter of the whole market. And by just extending the list to 500 companies, you have 80% of the market. That's right. So the strength of those largest companies can't be ignored either. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, they drive the indexes. And that's one of the things that and we've talked about in previous podcasts, how the performance of the S&P 500 over the last year has been largely driven by the six largest companies. Which are? Which are Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and now Tesla. And GameStop. And GameStop. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. Okay. (laughs) So unlike the Dow, the S&P 500 is what's called a market-weighted index. And what that means is that every stock is represented in proportion to its total market capitalization relative to the index. So if you have a company that's worth $100 billion and another company that's worth $50 billion, the smaller company will be half of the representation in the index. So again, it's not share price which, as you point out, can be irrelevant in many cases. It's a market capitalization index. And most of the indexes that will follow, like the NASDAQ composite, are the same. But even that to that example, do you remember when Apple split a couple months ago? Was it like five for one or something like that? Tesla split, but Apple split a few years ago. Two years ago. So they dropped down the ranking in the Dow 30 by, I don't know, nine or 10 spots. But nothing had changed in their market capitalization. They just split their share price. Exactly. So when you look at the top 10 companies in the S&P 500, you'll see the same names or many of the same names that are in the Dow, as you'd expect. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, Google, which has two share classes, so it occupies two spots, Berkshire Hathaway, Johnson & Johnson, and J.P. Morgan Chase. So again, lots of overlap, as you'd expect. But also because of the largest size of the index and they do quarterly rebalancing or reconstitution, there's about, on average, about 25 index changes every year compared to one or maybe two for the Dow. So a lot more activity, a lot more trading. Greg, let's get into reconstitution here. Let's talk about that. So reconstitution, which is done quarterly on the S&P 500. And what that means is like if a stock grows dramatically, then its market capitalization has grown and it now represents a larger portion of the index. So it now has a higher weighting in the index and a greater impact on the index. Of course, what happens is that Index funds, whether they're mutual funds or ETFs, they all have to make those adjustments as well to make sure that they continue to track the index as directly as possible. Now, it gets interesting when a company is added to the index. And so let's take the most recent example. Tesla was added to the index in December of this past year, December of 2020. 
Now, that was announced to the market probably a month in advance or sometime in advance. I think it was about a month in advance of the actual change that included Tesla. So what happened? Well, from the time it was announced, I think Tesla shares rose something on the order of 40% prior to being added to the index. And that's because everybody knew that Tesla, therefore, would there would be a lot of buying pressure when every index fund and ETF that tracked the S&P 500 would have to go in and buy those shares on December 20th or because 21st. everybody knows they have to be bought on that day. Exactly. And so, in fact, the day before the shares were included in the index, Tesla shares rose 6%. Now, what happened at the end of the day the shares were actually added to the index? Well, the shares actually closed down 6%. That's because everybody that had bought the price and ridden the share price up in anticipation of Tesla being added to the index were now taking their profits. But as a result, all the indexers had to pay 40% more than the stock was trading at more than a month prior, just because that's required. That's for passive investing. So it's interesting that there can be this reconstitution effect that pushes prices up of stocks before they're added to the index, and it pushes down stock prices for companies that are being removed from the index, and that can have a big impact on returns. Because everybody that follows that index has to do that trade. That's right. But there are fund companies and ETFs out there that are broad market-based that don't have a necessary reconstitution date. Yes. And they can choose to not participate in that purchase or sale on that day, and they choose to do that because it seems like kind of crazy activity to be forced to buy or sell something on a day. Exactly. And that's, as we've talked in these podcasts, I mean, there are a variety of different investment strategies that funds will use. And certainly indexing is seen as a very low cost way to own a broadly diversified portfolio, but you are subject to some of these costs and the costs being how much have you lost by reconstitution. So it's a big issue and one you can't just really sweep it under the rug because it can have a big impact. So we talked about the S&P 500. It's got a much broader representation of the U.S. market, but it still excludes about 3,000 companies. So there's a lot of other indexes that were created to capture the entire market. So basically every tradable stock in the U.S. that has a price discovery every day. And those include the Wilshire 5000 total market index, the Russell 3000 index, and the CRISP total market index. And interesting thing about the Wilshire 5000 is at the time that it was created, there was about 5,000 stocks trading in the U.S. And at the peak, there was about 7,500 stocks trading in the U.S. I believe right now we're down to about 3,500 to 4,000, something in that range. But they still, for what, for historical reasons, just still call it the 5,000 It's still index? the 5,000. That's right. <laughs> So just to round out the major U.S. indexes, the NASDAQ Composite Index is the last one. It holds about 2,500 stocks. It uses a market cap-weighted process like the S&P 500. The interesting thing about the NASDAQ, though, is it does hold shares of companies that are headquartered outside of the U.S. And so it's the only major U.S. index that does that. And it's also seen as being representative of the technology sector as a whole because about half of the companies in the index are technology companies. And so while it's not technology only, it's certainly heavily weighted there. So that's three indexes. I mentioned earlier that there's thousands of indexes in the US. And let's just talk about some of the more significant ones. Now, Colin, do you recall podcast episode eight? Greg, I remember all 39 previous episodes. So (laughs) yes. Well, good. So as a refresher, 
research has shown us over time that small companies, which are also called small cap companies or small capitalization companies, and companies trading at low relative prices relative to their book value or earnings, which are also called value companies, have higher expected returns over time than large cap companies and growth companies. And because of that, in order to track different investment styles and strategies, indexes were created to represent those. And so I believe the Fama and French paper identifying the small cap and value effect was published in 92 and 95. Russell created subsets of their Russell 3000 index to include the Russell 1000, which is the largest companies, and the Russell 2000, which is the small cap companies. And so you can see there's more companies that are small, but they represent a smaller proportion of the total market capitalization. You know what I was just thinking of as you're saying that is it's like when you buy a car, like BMWs have a three series, a five series, and a seven series. So in this case, I think listeners should think of that as the Russell 1000 is just 1000 companies. The 2000 is 2000 companies. That's right. Yeah. And they work their way down, the 1000 being the largest and the 2000 being the smallest. And the Russell 2000 is now seen as the best kind of representation of small cap companies in the US. And then they also created subsets of each of those to differentiate between value companies and growth companies. And so again, you can have, if fund managers, for example, are trading mainly in small cap stocks, they have an index or a benchmark, as we talked earlier, to compare themselves to. Okay. We talked about how basically indexes have been used as a base to create ETFs, which allow investors to essentially buy the index and ensure that they don't underperform dramatically. The providers of those index funds and ETFs have basically sliced and diced the market to accommodate investors, as I said earlier, their thematic or market timing wishes. So basically, we've replaced stock picking with theme picking, and we've created indexes for all the subsets you can imagine. We talked about these a couple of times ago. Examples being work from home stocks, like indexes of work from home stocks, indexes of genomics companies, ride sharing companies, artificial intelligence, lithium or battery oriented companies, renewable energy, and that kind of thing. So there's certainly a way using indexes as a guide to invest in all of those different themes. And with those 5,000 indexes in the US, you're going to find something you like. Sure. Well, and actually, I don't want to be negative on those sub-indices or the smaller indexes that are tracking those things because I saw one the other day, it was a travel ETF. And it's probably not a bad idea. Like if somebody's interested in investing in like a cruise line or an airline or hotels because they believe there's a vaccination that will be widely distributed and people will go back to traveling, it's probably less risky to buy that travel ETF than it is to pick one of those companies. Absolutely. So nothing wrong with that. Nope. Well, let's spend a few minutes on international indexes or indices. So I'm going to start with the MSCI EFI index, which is Europe, Australasia, and the Far East. And this index represents 21 developed market countries around the world. It excludes the US and Canada, but it represents 85% of the market capitalization in each country. So the countries that would make up the EFI index would include, I won't name them all, but things like Japan, France, Germany, Italy, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden. Anyways, these are developed nations. These are nations whose economies have grown and are developed. Correct. So they're very similar sort of nations to North American nations like Canada and the US. 
So the risk level associated with a developed nation, I think, would be lower than when we talk about a developing nation. Agreed. So we won't spend very much time on that. Just the idea that, look, if you're going to buy international investments, there is an opportunity to invest in exchange-traded funds or mutual funds that have that international developed exposure. Versus emerging market indices, which is exactly what it says. These are emerging countries. So in 1988, this index was launched. It included 10 countries. It now captures around 26 countries across the world and has a weight in the world of about 12%. So in English, I should rephrase that. 12% of the whole market in the world, emerging markets represents 12%. And there's emerging markets in the Americas, in Europe, in Asia, In the Americas, they'd be the things like you remember, like Brazil. In other parts of the world, be like Russia, India, China, otherwise known as the BRIC countries. But you've got the Philippines, Korea, Turkey, Peru. There's a list of 26 countries that represent emerging economies. So these are not developed nations, they're developing nations. So Greg, how can we sort of reframe this back to what it all means for people? To me, I think what it says is, look, the worldwide market of stocks, the investable market that you or I, investors in Canada and around the world, can select from is very broad and may offer opportunities. And the fact that we can look at markets in the emerging markets, we can look at international developed markets or the US and Canada, it just creates an opportunity for broader diversification. And so by either investing in funds that actively pick stocks from those different regions or in index ETFs that have been created to capture those returns, it just gives us an opportunity to invest broadly and participate in the growth of economies and countries around the world and not just be limited to at home. So listen, we've talked about home bias before. Canada, as we've talked, represents something like 3% of the world's stock market capitalization. And many Canadian investors are heavily, more heavily weighted to Canada than 3% of their portfolio. And there may be reasons to be more heavily invested in Canada, but probably not at the 50 or 60 or 80% level. And the same problem even for people in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. represents 54% of the world, but that's still only half. And the other half may have significant opportunities that may present themselves at different times. And so world market of stocks, there's indexes to track every region and every subset of every region, as we've talked. But it's certainly the opportunity to participate in companies' profits around the world. And I forgot, I did some homework before this episode and I forgot it, (laughs) but my dog ate it. But I did run a report that showed the performance by Canada, the performance by the US, the performance by developed countries and the performance by emerging countries. And I ran them separately. And they said exactly what you think they would say. There was times of volatility. There was time periods where certain ones outperformed other ones. But when I ran another report and I combined them all in a world market portfolio that represented 3% Canada, 54% US, 31% developed and 12% emerging, what do you think the results were? I'm going to guess they were pretty good. Yeah, they were higher on the long run basis 
than any of the individual markets themselves over the long-run basis. And they had a lower standard deviation or a lowered volatility measurement than any of the individual markets themselves. So that's pretty good. That is good. That again is just, we hammer on asset allocation and diversification all the time. And I think what these market indexes and the ETFs or the funds based on those allow us to do is to participate, as you say, and to find a way to actually earn our free lunch. Exactly. So there you go. Well, listen, we should probably get wrapping it up here, but I think what I heard you say is focus on asset allocation, be diversified, reduce your fees and expenses as much as possible. And I have one more, and that comes from when we talked about how different markets have different characteristics and the S&P 500, for example, being a large cap growth market largely growth index, I should say. It's like, if you're not invested that way, that may not be, as you pointed out early on in the segment, that may not be the best benchmark for your portfolio. So if you're investing in small companies, you should be comparing yourself to a small company index. If you're investing globally, or you should compare yourself to a global index. And so it's important when people have a tendency just to look at their performance on their statements and make a decision as to whether it's good or bad. The answer might not be that simple. And I think the fact that there's different ways to slice and dice the market through indexes and through your investments, and it comes down to explaining performance as opposed to just identifying it. So you can identify performance and and you don't know if it's good or bad until you actually explain it by comparing to the right index. So add that into the mix. But that one's way too long. I mean, when I say asset allocation, diversification, those are are short one or two word answers. Yeah. Sorry. I sucked up an extra two and a half minutes there. My apologies. (laughs) Well, listen, thanks for joining us today, Greg. Anything last to comment on? No, just glad that the weather's warming up. So get outside and enjoy it and stay safe. Well, and I think it's warmer today here in Calgary than it is in Austin, Texas. So yes, yes, thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.